The Constitution of the United States of America with the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution of the United States of America with the Declaration of Independence. You're listening to the Constitution of the United States of America with the Declaration of Independence, presented by Hitman, H-I-T-M-A-N, Hakeem in the morning, afternoon, and night, Hakeem Alibokis Alexander. I never know when I'm going to be on any place live or recorded, morning, afternoon, or night. This is presented for World Reading Club. Communications with two Ks. That's Hakeem Alexander Communications. Hack. In association with exercisingyourmind.com and Uniquilibrium. Of course, this edition's reading focus comes to us from the United States Constitution. Constitution of the United States of America. I know, exciting stuff for all of you. I know that you'll be so happy to listen to this and hear the Constitution of the United States of America because it's so exciting for so many people. It's exhilarating to hear the Constitution of the United States of America because that's what everybody does. Just like people sit around and read dictionaries for the fun of it. I'm sure that uh, people just love to sit down with a cup of apple juice and read the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence from beginning to end, because that's fun. Well, let's see what we have here. First of all, there's an introduction. The sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased. Alexander Hamilton, The Farmer Refuted, 1775. That's interesting. You know, there's a, a dream I had once and uh, there were two, well, several different uh, pieces of prose came out of it. One of them, was my love is not like the beam of a flashlight but more like the rays of the sun flooding over every living thing and i wonder if that's something similar it says uh they are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of the divinity itself it can never be erased he's talking about the sacred rights of mankind all right well let's see Hmm. Katrina sent me a message. She's getting ready to. She's going for a job interview. All right, well, let's see. Of course, well, the the United States Constitution, these documents written on old parchments, squirreled away among rusty, musty records, remain living realities because why they eloquently record the sacred rights and responsibilities of human beings. We still think about the enduring challenges of government in terms of coined 
by the revolutionary generation of Americans. They thought more deeply and argued more vigorously about these challenges than any generation after them. Hey, is that a, is that a, a jab at us? I think it, it should be, right? People, they argue more, more vigorously, uh, more deeply. They thought more deeply and argued more vigorously <laughs> about these challenges than any generation after them, leaving us a series of unprecedented experiments in nation building and constitution making. We often forget just how revolutionary the creation of the United States was. However, the Americans of that era never forgot it. Revisiting these documents enables us to grasp the American experiment's revolutionary quality. Let's take a look at the Declaration of Independence. Shall we? What the hell is going on with this cup of tea? Man, we got, I got to transfer it into another container. All right, let's see. The Declaration of Independence, the central document of a American political life, codifies the American political creed. To understand it, however, we must know its origins and purpose. The Declaration was, okay, this is all, you guys are kidding me. Who, who, who is this? We must know. First of all, I'd like to tell you, you guys ever see a Fall River Press? Um, they... It's an imprint of Sterling Publishing Company Incorporated, uh, and um, they're 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 trademarks of Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble uh, reprises all kinds of classical books for their um, their store. This is one of them. Just like I think my copy of uh, of another old ass book. The, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a look. The Wealth of Nations, right? This is, you guys remember, didn't Michael Jackson, uh, like, take the, um, yeah, it is Fall River Press. Didn't Michael Jackson get hold of the rights of, like, a bunch of Beatles songs for a long time? That's, that's like, it's like kidnapping somebody's intellectual property. And then, uh, Anyway, the compilation and introduction. <laughs> Sterling Publishing. Okay. All right, to understand it, however, we must know its origins and purpose. The Declaration was the last American word in argument between Great Britain and its American colonists. In 1763, the British Empire, the most successful and freest the world had seen, had no more loyal subjects than the colonists of the 13 mainland colonies of British North America. Within two years, however, the first stirrings of disagreement between Britain and the colonists began to disturb peace within the empire. Really? Is that what happened? Hey, it's 11.11 a.m., y'all. That's a sign that we should... Uh, Keep a lookout for what might be going on. 11 in the angel numbers is a, uh, a calling. 
to take a look around. It says the angels are trying to communicate with you. Specifically, as Mystic Michaela says, it's the awakening. You are being called to attention. Your angels want to send you signs, but first, they need to make sure you keep paying attention. This number asks you to notice the world around you so you don't miss the important messages coming your way. Ask your angels for confirmation after you see this number. Repetition is their way of getting your attention. 11, 11 a.m. That's, of course, where I am in uh, the East Coast of the United States and currently in Richmond, Virginia. So, uh, yeah, let me ask. Hey, angels, give me confirmation. I've seen the number is 1111. I know that repetition is your way of getting our attention, so please give me some confirmation. See how easy that was? All right, let's see. Uh, yeah, begin, you know, there was a disagreement. Within two years, the first stirrings of disagreement between Britain and the colonists began to disturb peace within the empire. Two years after the end of the French and Indian Seven Years' Wars, it also was called, Britain confronted massive war debts. Convinced that the colonists had a free ride on the backs of British taxpayers, British politicians decided to redress the balance by taxing them. Oh, I see what's coming here. But the colonists protested these taxes as unconstitutional. You know, seven years later after, uh, well, let me see. Well, no, oh, crap. In 1762, the British Empire, yeah, so seven years later would be 1773. So that would be the British, the, the, uh, the Boston Tea Party. Let's read along. This controversy put the nature of the British Constitution into dispute. Unlike the United States Constitution, the British Constitution is not one is not one authoritative document framed and adopted at a specific time. Rather, it is the mass of laws, judicial decisions, documents having constitutional status, such as the Magna Carta, and customs making up or constituting the British government. Right? Constituting means make up, like, what's your constitution? You have a strong constitution, right? Your own, how are you made up, right? Constituting the British government. Because the British constitution is unwritten, oh crap, an array of understandings of its principles could spring up. Two of these marked out the opposing positions between the colonists and Britain. The colonists saw the British constitution as a restraint on arbitrary power. Each of its three major institutions, the Crown, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons, had the power to check the other two. Arbitrary or unchecked power went beyond actual tyranny to include potential tyranny. When Parliament made laws for the colonies as the Empire's supreme authority, it was acting arbitrarily, unchecked. When they made laws for the colonies as the Empire's supreme authority was acting arbitrarily or unchecked. In particular, taxation without representation was tyranny. I gotta remind you what what happened once again, people. You know in the book Tax Free Wealth, How to Build Massive Wealth by Permanently Lowering Your Taxes. You know what uh, rule number one is, right? It's your money. Not the government's. That's rule number one. It's your money, 
not the government. That, that's rule number one. And rule number two is the tax law is written primarily to reduce your taxes. It's your money, not the government. And uh, the tax law is written primarily to reduce your taxes. That's 99.5% primarily written to reduce your taxes, that is. All right. Yeah, so the, the in particular taxation without representation was tyranny. Parliament could not tax the colonists because they could not vote for members of the House of Commons. Only the colonial legislatures could tax the colonists. By contrast, the British happily gave Parliament its role as a supreme institution in their constitutional system. Parliament had earned this role by defending liberty against the Stuart kings Charles I and James II. Each member of the House of Commons represented not just those who elected him, but all the king's subject. subjects. Right? Under this idea of virtual representation, virtual, Parliament could tax the colonists and make laws for them, though they were not actually represented. So in arguing with Britain, the 13 colonies, which previously were closer to the mother country than to one another, learned that they had a common cause, defending their liberties. So this insight, fostered by the Stamp Act Congress of 1765 and the First Continental Congress of 1774, led them to see themselves as Americans. By 1776, same year uh, that uh, I might remind you that Wealth of Nations was published in Scotland by Adam Smith. By 1776, the argument between, the, between Britain and the colonies had reached a stalemate. They were at a pause. The British were not listening to the Americans hmm. and had sent British soldiers to bring the colonists under control. <laughs> Oh, boy. The reality of war, which began at Lexington and Concord in 1775, opened American minds to the idea of independence from Britain. That January, Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, offered a powerful case for independence. Beginning by demolishing the monarchy, the last linchpin of American loyalty to Britain, Paine showed that the Americans deserved independence and could win it persuading hundreds of thousands to see independence as legitimate and desirable. Four months later, in May 1776, the Second Continental Congress directed the colonies to frame new constitutions to replace their colonial charters. Americans' commitment to liberty, the core principle of Anglo-American constitutionalism, was pushing them out of the empire. That June, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, that's where I am right now, introduced three resolutions in the Second Continental Congress. The first declaring that the colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. On July 2nd, 1776, Congress adopted those resolutions. Two days later, it adopted a declaration drafted by Thomas Jefferson, setting forth the Americans' case against George III and for independence, so against George III and for independence. The Declaration looks in two directions at once. It looks backward 
as the last American word in the argument with Britain and forward, charting the future political development of an independent America. It indicted George III because the king had spurned his last chance to avoid a breach with the colonies. It framed its, its famed preamble was key in its case against the king. Its citing of inalienable, inalienable rights and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness formed the basis on which Americans could invoke the right of revolution against a tyrant, George III. And yet, the Declaration's preamble also states the principles on which Americans would build their constitutions and political systems and govern themselves. Americans have continued to invoke the Declaration to advance the cause of democracy, equal rights, and individual liberty at home and around the world. Thus, the document by which the Second Continental Congress justified declaring independence found a life of its own as a cultural, political, and constitutional symbol, eclipsing the act it was intended to explain. The Articles of Confederation, right? Just as it took time for Americans to break with Britain, it took time for them to see themselves, as in Hamilton's words in The Federalist, number 85, a nation without a national government, and take steps to remedy that defect. In the process, they had to prepare the political ground for governmental reform and to devise mechanisms and institutions that they wanted to assemble as a new national constitution. Beginning in 1776, Americans launched a series of experiments in state constitution making. By the way, y'all, um, just so you know, uh, there's this really cool website. It's on nationstates.net that um, I like using. I have the nation of unique equilibrium on there and it's very interesting because you can build a nation of your own and they present to you issues that you have to resolve and depending on them it'll steer the way that your nation goes the economy and all, all sorts of different things and it will um it, it's interesting because they actually use real issues but they're posed in very um, light-hearted and hilarious ways and then the way that your your nation uh, gets built based on that um you get descriptions of your nation that way and uh, it's quite hilarious it's, it's, i think it's a good way to focus on practicing reading that's like a big thing of mine right if you don't know that is literacy of education through literacy or what i call heuristic philology through literacy and um yeah so it i'm, I'm at the, the site right now it says nation states is a nation simulation game. Create a nation according to your political ideals and care for its people or deliberately oppress them. It's up to you. And it's fun. Um, it's, it's a good time. So let's see if I sign in here. Um, my nation is the dominion of unique equilibrium and it's cited as an inoffensive centrist democracy. I have my own flag there, which is pretty cool. And it says exercising your mind underneath there. Um, I just restarted again. Um, my population is at 3.736 billion. That's a lot of people. The capital is called Mordecai. It's in, it's in Chinese or Putonghua, Mandarin. The leader is Mordecai. 
Our faith is mathematics. The currency is numerology, and the animal is the capageta. Those are all my own words that you can plug in there, right? And just as in the beginning here, um, you can it reads, uh, The dominion of Unequilibrium is a massive, environmentally stunning nation, ruled by Mordecai with an even hand, and notable for its state-planned economy, otherworldly petting zoo, yes, we've got aliens there, and absence of drug laws. The quiet, industrious population of 3.736 billion Q-libses, that's our, our uh, people's name, like instead of Unequilibriumians, it's Q-libses, we call them. Um, they have some civil rights, but not too many, enjoy the freedom to spend their money however they like, to a point, and take part in free and open elections, although not too often. So, you know, it's fun and it goes on and on. So it's, it's a really cool little thing. All right. But uh, there we go. Hey, Carnal, how you doing, sir? All right. So back to the uh, this little thing about the second here, the Articles Confederation. So beginning in 1776, the Americans launched uh, a series of experiments in state constitution making. The fruits of those experiments guided later efforts in devising and amending constitutions, including in 1787... Ooh, that's that T-burp, including in 1787, framing the U.S. Constitution. But in 1776, few Americans felt that they needed a national government. For one thing, they recalled the failure of the British Empire. For another, they were devoted to a body of principles called republicanism. Americans wanted republican government, which meant no king and no nobility. Yeah, did you guys know that's what it meant to be Republican. No king and no nobility. Do you get some inklings? Okay, you know what? This is really bothering me that, that every time I try to sip my tea here, it just spills out of the side of this plastic cup here. So I have a mug for these sorts of things. It's not going to drink anymore until I can take a break and, and go get my mug. All right, so, yeah, republicanism is... Uh, is is uh, no no king, no nobility. They wanted a Republican government. Not a, you know what's interesting is that Karl uh, um, Marx actually says that democracy is the road to socialism and then socialism leads to communism. Just saying. Um, so everybody's all about democracy, this, that, right? Is it really democracy now? Is it really the best? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm learning here, too. So Americans wanted Republican government, which meant no king and no nobility. The people, the ultimate source of legitimate power, would exercise it through their elected representatives. But conventional wisdom taught that a republic could work only with a small population in a small territory. Each of the 13 states was as big as a republic could be to survive external and internal threats to its existence. Thus, it seemed unlikely that one government over all 13 states could survive and preserve liberty. In July 1776, when Congress adopted Lee's resolution for independence, they also adopted his two other resolutions. The first authored the, the first authorized negotiations with such European powers as France and Spain. The second called for Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. On November 15, 1777, after a year of argument, Congress sent the Articles of Confederation to the states. The Articles created a one 
House Confederation Congress, and with each state having one vote. Most issues required a majority, and such matters as treaties needed a two-thirds vote. All 13 states had to ratify any proposed amendment. The, Confeder the Confederation had no independent executive or judiciary, no power to raise revenue, and no power to operate directly on individuals. The Confederation had no independent executive or judiciary, no power to raise revenue, and no power to operate directly on individuals. So how, how would the Confederation be financed? Well, because the Confederation Congress had no taxing power, it had to ask the states for money, with each state's share based on the value of its lands. The states were to collect taxes and send the proceeds to the Confederation. Americans distrusted a strong central government, especially one with taxing power. I remind you again, taxes. This is why the first rule of taxes is it's your money, not the government. And the second rule teaches us that the tax laws are written primarily to save you money. Or in specifically, the tax law is written primarily to reduce your taxes. So, so they were, you know, Americans distrusted a strong central government, especially one with taxing power. They were fighting a revolution against one such government, and they were leery of trusting another. Also, Congress caught up uh, in the revolution's fervor believed that faith in the cause would spur the states to do what they were asked to do. But it took new, nearly four years for all 13 states to ratify the Articles. And under the Articles, the United States established relations with the Netherlands, France, Morocco, Prussia, and Spain borrowed money abroad to help finance the war and fielded a continental army that won the war. It fielded, they put the money here. Its diplomats won the peace, negotiating the Treaty of Paris in 1783, under which Britain recognized American independence and gave the United States all territories between the uh, Allegheny Mountains and the Mississippi River. Like they gave it to them. Right? It beat your ass, Britain. Right? Uh, and then the Confederation's domestic, the greatest domestic achievement has to do with those Western lands. Some states claimed, claimed these lands based on colonial charters, but their claims overlapped. Other states, which had no land claims, resented that landed states had a chance to make windfall profits by selling land to settlers and investors, while at the same time stealing them from the First Nations. That was my addition there. The landless states refused to ratify the Articles of Confederation until the landed states transferred their claims to the United States so that the nations could reap this windfall. The next problem was governing those lands. Under, under territorial ordinances, fucking territorial ordinances. What did you say, Colonel? You heard someone recently say, we are all Republicans. The knee-jerk response to those words was hilarious. Technically, all U.S. citizens are Republicans by default, but many have been programmed to hate the idea of being a Republican. The Democrats are very effective at projecting their sins upon their enemies. Yeah, democracy is the, is the equivalent of majority rule and its pure chaos. Yeah. 
I mean, that would seem to be what it is. You're right. Yeah, we're a republic, not a democracy. Republic is uh, is kings and nobility. I mean, you know, I mean, sorry, an empire is kings and nobility. Republic is a republic is against kings and nobility. Right. So, but you know, that's uh, maybe a discussion for later. The the, the landless states, all right. So the next problem was governing, governing these lands. Under territorial ordinances that Congress adopted in 1784, 85, and 87, these lands were organized as territories to be admitted to the Union as new states on an equal basis with the original 13, with rules for organizing local government and for public education. Slavery would not be allowed north of the Ohio River, the Northwest Territory. Thus, Congress abandoned the old model of colonialism, a mother country governing territories as colonies only in its own interests. Hmm. So was that a result of that? It says slavery would not be allowed north of the Ohio River, the Northwest Territory. Thus, Congress abandoned the old model of colonialism, which is a mother country governing territories as colonies only in its own interest. Despite these successes, the Articles had fundamental weaknesses that threatened the Union. Also, state economic and political problems, which the Confederation could not resolve, threatened the American experiments in government. American experiments in government. Experiments, experiments, experiments in government. Experiments in government. Experiments in government. Experiments, experiments, experiments in government. Experiments. The Treaty of Paris pledged Americans to honor debts owed to British or loyalist creditors. Hmm. But the states ignored these promises. Angered, Britain refused to withdraw from the Western territories. Also, Britain, France, and Spain limited trade with the new nation, which could not retaliate or force the lifting of these limits. Third, Spain controlled the lower Mississippi, strangling American settlements unless American settlers swore allegiance to Spain. Again, the United States was powerless to resist. Were they really powerless to resist? We'll find out. Powerless. They say that the states were powerless to resist, but I'm not so sure about that. There's a lot that they could do, and probably did. The Confederation had repeated difficulties with the states. You see how often this stuff is used? This is, I mean, if if, we're, if it's not clear that state making and nation building is not all about resources and money, I mean, they were fighting against taxes, right? And then the new, the new, uh, the new. They, 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 France and Spain limited trade. Britain, France, and Spain limited trade with the new nations. Hey, Andrew, I see you there. Hold on for a second. Let's, let's see what Andrew's got to say today. I'll take Andrew as a caller to give myself a little break here for a moment. What's up, Andrew? Good morning. Good afternoon, Hakeem. I'm doing well, sir. How are you? Pretty good. Are we still in the... Articles of Confederation era here. 
Yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. Something interesting. Um, well, I don't know. Were you saying a second ago that you do agree that nation building is mostly about money and resources? Yes. Okay, yeah. Agreed. The I think that the the revolutionary war was actually not fought for uh, you know against taxes. I think it was mostly fought to um get around the proclamation of 1763 where the British limited settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains and people like yeah. George Washington were set to profit handsomely um, from the seizure of more Indian land. Um, and so pretty, pretty much immediately after the, um, the war for independence had, had ended, they started, you know, just saying that they own. So Andrew, just for a moment there, your, um, signal seems to have cut out for a moment, but yes, um, this, this one of the things that I just uh, went over just now was um, how, you know, Britain refused to release claim on the uh, Western territories. And uh, yeah, that's where we are so far. And uh, let's see, you unmuted again there. I don't, I still don't hear you good, sir. But maybe you can, um, no, I, I, I think that you should uh, drop out of the room and come back. Maybe that'll help out. Let's see who I have over here on uh, takeover on wisdom while Andrew figure that out. Yeah, I can't hear you right now, Andrew. So maybe drop out of the um, the room and just come back in and we'll see what happens there. I'll talk to Chuck in a second here. Let's see what's going on over on wisdom. Good day sir i'm doing well how about you uh same thing can't complain you know yeah man so what's up uh not much just listening to you and all that are you on i was i don't know i would try to hear you on the other app on but i don't want to say that but i couldn't find you it's right. when i'm on calling yeah that's what i was like i was just over there trying to hear you but it, it i couldn't hear no sound Oh, weird. Well, I mean, I do know that the guys over here can hear me because we're we're talking. So, um, I I got Andrew back here. If you want to come back up in a minute or chat, I'm gonna. He he was just uh, in the middle of some good, some good juicy points here. Oh no problem, man. I just came up to say, don't stop the hustle. One love. Yeah, man. I appreciate you. One love, man. That was Chuck. Over on Wisdom. Hey, Andrew. I think I got your sound back here. Hey, yeah. Well, how much did you hear? Because I think my my internet connection went out. Um, well, let's just continue with the, the point about uh, the British not wanting to release the uh, Western territories and go from there. And then yeah, the British... The colonists, oh, George Washington being sent basically to make a whole lot of money and taking territories away from the First Nations, or as you called them, the Indians. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, George Washington, among other so-called founding fathers, were positioned to profit extremely uh, handsomely from the theft and sale of more Indian land. And the um, 
the other thing too is there were there were beginning to be legal precedents set in uh, Britain that were eroding the legal foundation for slavery. Um, yeah. So I think that the motivation to um, steal and resell land and then also uh, perpetuate slavery longer than it appeared it was going to be in um, the UK uh, were much larger motivations than tax policy. Uh, although, although there was some uh, worry among the the American colonists that the the British Crown would allow the East India Company to take over uh, more of the the colony's business in the Americas, and that was a, that was a real worry. And and the taxes and the the sort of indentured servitude that come along with the East India Company were also a fear. Um, but another thing. I wanted to mention about the Articles of Confederation period um, that was another uh, motivation for making the Constitution. So this is um, and then, um, you know, why make a why? Why have the Constitutional Convention? I think the real uh, reasons that the Constitutional Convention were held are almost never taught. Um, so during the War of Independence, or as Americans call it, the Revolutionary War, um, you had a lot of small-time farmers and people who were soldiers in the Revolutionary Army. Um, they were given, they were paid in bonds. You know, basically they were they were issued debt uh, from the the um, you know the Revolutionary Congress and said, yeah, when we win the huh. <laughs> You don't say they were issued debt, huh? What a that that's a, I'm glad we did away with that concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, hasn't Those that been so much nicer? Features. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So the, they couldn't pay a lot of the soldiers and farmers. So soldiers were, you know, being soldiers for a promise of money. Farmers were having their whole crops taken to feed the. But the American army, um, without being paid, they were issued debt from the new government. However, because there was a really there was really no um, type of vibrant economy. And uh, and also, like you said, the other colonial powers limited trade. They essentially sanctioned the new United States in the earliest years. Um, a lot of these people who were the sol the literal soldiers and life lifeline of the whole American War of Independence, the farmers who fed them and the soldiers who fought in the war, they sold their debt out of desperation to very wealthy speculators who would buy their debt for, you know, pennies on the dollar. They would buy mm. the, the debt for a fraction of the cost. Um, and then and the, the, the most notable of these families who did this were the Adams family. So John Adams and his wife, um, were the largest da -da -da. holders. Da -da -da -da. Da -da -da -da. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like the creepy Adams family a hell of a lot better, just for the record. But yeah, they they they're kind of the the best example. They held they held the most uh, debt that the new government was um, ordered to pay them, and they paid a fraction of the cost, and then were being paid out handsomely, um, full value uh, for the. 
by the new government. And then all these people who had actually fought the war and had, you know, fed the troops to fight the war, um, were all essentially, uh, forced into like indentured servitude to the people who had bought their debt in their, you know, in their time of need, they had to sell their debt. And then they, and then they became, you know, really, um, financially deprived and in a really, uh, vulnerable situation. And so then the Adams and other, uh, prominent debt owning families, um, they were using state law in the, in the, under the articles of confederation, um, to change the tax and money printing. So they would issue state money and then they would tax the, um, the state money that they were issuing back from the farmers and the previous and the former soldiers. And they would also, um, they would like double tax people's work. So they would, they would tax their land. They would double tax their labor and they, they put them so far into debt, um, that they started taking people's land. So farmers and soldiers who had made the war possible were being basically robbed of their land by the so-called founding fathers and they started to um to reboot what are called regulator militias and it's kind of of a karma though you know if their land was being taken because they took it from some the first nations in the first place right i mean yeah but we're we're still talking (laughs) we're still talking about a big like uh a big fuck you to the like yeah i agree in, in a sense that like there it's it shouldn't really have legally been their land in the first place i mean the british crown just took it and then the the united states said all right this is ours now because we inherited it from the british crown and also we're laying claim to all of the other lands to the west um yeah i agree but But i'm just talking from your point though of what what really is that issue here is the the fact that um the the british crown and the powers that be still were being like f you and you know, saying this is what you were supposed to have, but through all of this little um, debt-based ledger domain, we're taking it back. They well, basically... this is this is no, this is in the Confederate, uh, the Articles of Confederation. So this is the United States founding fathers who owned all this debt. Right. Uh, okay. The, gotcha. They, they, that's the they, state it, issued debt as earlier. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, right. the, I'm the, I'm the United, yeah, the United States issued all this debt in in place of actual payment because they weren't issuing money they were issuing bonds during the war for independence and then as as the united states won and became its own nation outright it was it was a really um poor economy and so the the soldiers and farmers sold their debt to people like john adams and other you know founding father type of figures and then they were using the fact that they now had all of this money and that they also controlled the tax policy because these people were their own little oligarchs in every U.S. state. Um, they were taxing the, the average people so heavily that they were able to steal, you know, basically take their land as compensation for not being able to pay these really okay. high taxes. I got you. So let me, so, let me take a look at this here. So real quick, yeah. what we have are... Uh, the state issuing debt um, to the farmers and soldiers, right? Yeah, to From be the, able to fight the war. To be able to fight the war. But then yeah. those farmers and soldiers then sold their debt to other people, 
who yeah. then basically because they bought this, they like you said they gave them their own little oligarchies. They became oligarchs, yeah. and they were able to influence the 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 tax uh, rules and laws and things like that. And then were taking the land from people that they were taxing because they had all this land. And the people that were on the land, they started taxing them for the land that those people either bought or acquired. But because they couldn't pay the taxes, then they were taking their land. Yeah. Okay. I'm good. Gotcha. <laughs> so um, what happened was the, um, the you know, average colonists who are now the, you know, early United States citizens, um, they weren't able to really vote in most of their state legislatures to change the tax policy. They were losing their land very quickly. And so they started to form what are called regulator rebellions. Um, a really, really one of the most famous of these uh, regulator rebellions was Shays Rebellion. Uh, mm. But there were numerous, numerous regulator rebellions going on all over the states. And these are basically the former Revolutionary Army soldiers taking up arms against the founding fathers, against the state, um, you know, congresses in each of the states under the Articles of Confederation. And they were yeah. saying, we want an end to this tax policy. We want an end to, um, you know, this this kind of new oligarchy. We want better uh, voting rights and property rights. We want to amend the Articles of Confederation to protect ourselves better. Uh, but it was very clear that it was it was made very explicitly clear that these people did not want a new uh, government. They wanted to amend the Articles of Confederation, but keep the Articles of Confederation. And so then in secret, the founding fathers created the Constitutional Convention and made a whole new constitution. Whereas they, they were they were forced at gunpoint to do some type of reform, literally at gunpoint. These rebellions were, were so check you know. That. So this yeah. is what what Andrew is saying, because it, it just tracks along with what you, you were saying. The book says the exact same thing. It says the Confederation had repeated difficulties with the states. They rarely paid what they owed the Confederation in full or on time. Some never paid at all. They also ignored treaties with Indian nations. Many states failed to send delegates to Congress, often leaving Congress unable to function. The Confederation could not force states to meet their obligation, and it could not amend the Articles to give Congress more power. States dis disputed boundaries, argued over fishing rights, waged trade wars against one another, and imposed tariffs on goods imported across the state lines, all to bolster their own economies at their neighbor's expense. Also, settlers in frontier regions of New York, Virginia, Massachusetts, and North Carolina tried to found independent states, and Congress could not help resolve these disputes. Most alarming, turmoil between debtors and creditors convulsed many states, a problem worsened by the economic downturn of the mid-1780s. Hardest hit were farmers who lived from harvest to harvest and could be ruined by one bad year. In Rhode and they were Island, being taxed. They were being taxed on their harvest as well. Yeah. In Rhode Island, battles between debtor and creditor parties led to rapidly changing state laws, such as paper money laws, that helped debtors but hobbled interstate commerce and seemed 
to nervous creditors to attack the rights of private property. Uh, where debtors could not win relief through politics, they rebelled against what they saw as heartless creditors and an indifferent judicial system. The most famous debtors' rebellion was the one that you mentioned, was Shays' Rebellion, which began in Western Massachusetts. Outbreaks of debtor violence spread beyond that state from Vermont to Virginia. By some estimates, one-fourth of the armed men of New England took part in Shays' Rebellion. Daniel yeah. Shays former captain in the Continental Army, was more a symbol of revolt than an actual leader of the rebellion. He was a debt-ridden farmer who struggled to keep a roof over his family's head. In January of 1787, Massachusetts authorities, with the help of the Continental Army, put down Shays' rebellion, but its lessons lingered. Yeah, so I agree with a lot of that, except there was one part where they said the Articles of Confederation couldn't be amended to fix some of the problems. I mean, that was just not the case. Mm. Uh, all the all these different debtors, rebellion forces were demanding that the Articles of Confederation be amended um, to basically um, undo the situation where they were being they were becoming like serfs through debt. And uh, what 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 the founding fathers essentially did was they. They, they sort of calmed down the rebellions by agreeing to amend the Articles of Confederation. They said, okay, we'll amend the Articles of Confederation, um, and we'll send you a draft soon uh, for, the, for each state to, to ratify the amendments. But instead of sending amendments to the Articles of Confederation, they sent a whole new constitution that just gave them greater legal power to continue doing what they were doing with the debt peonage. And then at that point, they sent it out to the states. And I think they needed like seven or nine of the states. I can't remember. I think they needed nine to ratify the new constitution for it to be legal. Um, and they couldn't get to nine because these regulator rebellions started up again. But what they had done was while they were doing the, cons the constitutional Congress and creating this new governmental document without anybody's consent, really, uh, they were also hiring mercenaries. So when the regulator rebellions were starting up again against this new constitution and when the anti-federalists, for instance, were writing all of the anti-federalist papers and, and making arguments in the state legislatures that they should not ratify the new constitution, um, a lot of these people were either murdered or threatened with violence um, to either stop their debtors' rebellions or stop um, trying to influence the state uh, congresses against ratifying the Constitution. So the Constitution was created without anyone asking, without anyone's consent, and then it was forced down the throats of the state uh, congresses, in, including via threats of invasion to the last couple of states that did not ratify. And I want to say that those were... Um, I want to say that Massachusetts and Rhode Island were two of the states that held out the longest against ratifying the Constitution, although I could be wrong on which states they were. But they were threatened with they were threatened with in, invasion and extreme financial uh, retaliation if they did if they did not ratify the new Constitution that we currently use. See, this is there's this constant. Uh, I, I just use this term, but there's this constant weaponizing of of uh, resources and money you know basically um through yesterday what we talked about you know the differences between sanctions and tariffs and things like that but it's it's always 
a part, you know, being used as leverage. And um, let's see, let's see what Carnal says here. It says, uh, all of these details regarding the early hardships of the creation of our nation that lead to the evolution of the Constitution and uh, catapulted us to the mayhem we are dealing with now. A more perfect union leaves room to evolve to what that ideal may look like. The language you are choosing to represent these events bothers some. <laughs> what? Yeah, what language, Colonel, are you talking about? The language you are choosing to use to represent these events bothers me some. Okay, interesting. Um, Colonel, if you come up here for... Uh, actually, Andrew and Colonel, if you guys should... Uh, let me see here. Um, I, can, I can step down. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there you go. And there's Colonel, too. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to hear. So, Colonel, I did uh, invite you up there. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, so what is it that um, bothers you some? And um, you guys can uh, chat for a moment. I actually have to grab something because I'm trying to drink this tea here and this freaking cup. It's like spilling all over my all over me. I don't know what the heck they gave me here. Like a, it's like a cup with a hole <laughs> in it. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, they gave they gave you a flute, right? I don't know what the hell this is. Um, but yeah, the, this is part three. Here is the making of the Constitution. So, when Carnal, whenever you're ready, I'd like to know what language that is. Um, but in the mid 1780s, Americans who thought in national terms, argued that the problems plaguing the Confederation required a revolution in government. Uh, they revived the political process that between 1765 and 1776 had created the revolutionary movement. In 1785, at the Mount Vernon Conference, delegates from Virginia and Maryland settled boundary disputes and navigation rights. Virginia then proposed a convention to meet at Annapolis, Maryland in September 1786 to solve national commercial problems. Only delegates from Virginia, New York, Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey showed up at Annapolis, but they seized the chance to redefine the American political agenda. I think that's what, Andrew, what you were kind of talking about, right? They did it without permission, right? Because only a few of them showed up. They proposed a new convention to meet in Philadelphia in 1787 to render the constitution of government adequate to the exigencies of the Union. On February 21st, 1787, the Confederation Congress endorsed this proposal, but in a more limited resolution, stressing revision of the articles clashed with the Annapolis Mandate. Huh. So, but uh, but in its more limited resolution, stressing revision of the articles clashed with the Annapolis Mandate. Of the 74 delegates from the 12 states Rhode Island refused, only 55 showed up at the convention at some point. Some of the greatest American politicians were not there. John Adams was American minister to Great Britain. Thomas Jeff Jefferson was American minister to France. John Jay was the Confederation's secretary for foreign affairs in New York City. Patrick Henry stayed in Virginia because he was uninterested in national politics, although he later claimed, I smelt a rat. Five kinds of delegates attended the convention. National heroes, <laughs> they put that in, in, in uh, italics, National heroes, George Washington of Virginia and Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, 
brought prestige, guaranteeing that Americans would give the convention's proposals a fair hearing. Theorists of government, such as James Madison of Virginia, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, and Alexander Hamilton of New York, brought ideas that the convention would use to frame its proposals. Elder statesmen, such as John Dickinson of Delaware and Roger Sherman of Connecticut, brought their experience, one of two reality checks on convention, advocates of local interests such as William Patterson of New Jersey and Luther Martin of Maryland spoke for the state's concerns, the other reality check. Finally, most delegates, such quiet men as John Blair, again in in italics, quiet men such as John Blair of Virginia and Jacob Broom of Delaware became raw material for consensus and compromise. From May 25th through May 28th, the delegates elected their president, George Washington, and their secretary, William Jackson of Georgia, and adopted rules. From May 29th, when Edmund Randolph of Virginia proposed the resolutions known as the Virginia Plan to June 14th, the large state delegates prevailed on nearly every issue. The Virginia Plan outlined a national government with supreme legislative, executive, and judicial branches. On June 15th, the small state delegates counterattacked backing William Patterson's New Jersey plan, which was nothing more than a reworking of the Articles of Confederation, giving Congress more power. On June 19th, the convention reaffirmed the Virginia plan, but large state delegates and small state delegates battled for weeks over representation in Congress. Small state delegates fought for for equality of states in Congress. Large states delegates demanded representation based on population. Well, that's still something that goes on today, right? They wanted representation based on population, which I don't know, seems to be somewhat fair. If there's more people there, they might have more uh, to say because they're a bigger part of the population. This conflict lasted through July 16th when the convention adopted the Great Connecticut Compromise. From July 19th to July 26th, the delegates poured over the plan tinkering and adjusting, and then recessed for a week. During the recess, Randolph prepared the Constitution's first draft, drawing on Wilson's advice. The delegates reconvened on August 6th. For the next five weeks, they tackled problems they had postponed, such as devising a method for choosing the president and vice president. They also adopted compromises to appease the slave states. Hmm. From September 10th to September 12th, the Committee on Style and Arrangement drew up the Constitution's final draft, assigning this tax to Governor Morris of Pennsylvania. From September 12th to September 17th, that's my birthday, the delegates moved through the last stage of revision. On September 17th, 1787, 37 of the 40 delegates present of the, here we go, on September 17th, 1787, 37 of the 40 delegates present voted to adopt and sign the Constitution and to send it to the Confederation Congress. No group at the convention got its way, especially not the theorists of government. Senior statesmen warned them that they were going too far and too fast. Localist politicians demanded fairness for state interest and architects of compromise, (laughs) architects of compromise, I love the word architects. Architects of compromise set their ideas aside. 
but especially when they put them into a phrase like that and give people a name, a label, architects of compromise. Architects of compromise set their ideas aside. Nothing is more fatal to theoretical purity than the spirit of compromise. Hmm. Nothing is more fatal to theoretical purity than the spirit of compromise. The convention made a vitally important shift from devising the best constitution possible in theory to devising the best that had a chance to be adopted. So what kind of document did this process produce? Hmm. I'm going to stop there for a second. Hey, Carnal. So what is, uh, what is this? Uh, oh boy, Brady, I have no idea what's going on there in the, um, with this. So, Andrew, that's I'm just pausing there for right now. That was it. Um, about some of the things that you had mentioned uh, with the, seems like the Constitution was kind of slid in under the radar. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's also important to to reiterate that, like, the debt, the debtor-creditor relations between the vast majority of the population who were the farmers and soldiers or people who didn't fight really. Uh, but yeah, the farmers and soldiers uh, who supported the Continental Army and made the, the independence from Britain possible, their biggest concern um, was the, um, the debt to creditor relations. And they, they were, they were literally taking up arms and, and revolting or starting a new revolution against these founding fathers um, because they were having their land taken um, through the manipulation of debt. And th I think the big things to mention that, that these people really did not like about the new constitution and, and why they really tried to keep it from being um, ratified was that it, it, it reaffirmed the, the debts. It, it reaffirmed that all existing debts had to be continually paid uh, that carried over from the the, Confeder the Articles of Confederation. They also were very concerned that the Constitution allowed for the provision of a militia or army to put down revolts. Um, and they were also uh, really concerned that there was no Bill of Rights. The Constitution was um, delivered to the 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 Articles of Confederation, whatever I can't remember the the Continental Congress, the the yeah. Congress that was left over from the Articles of Confederation, without a Bill of Rights. Uh, however, I think Pennsylvania and Virginia did have bills of rights uh, that were actually larger than the ten that we got in the in the Constitution. And so what was happening was a lot of the states were saying we don't want to ratify the the new Constitution because it it mandates that all the existing debts be paid. And we don't want to ratify the Constitution because there's no uh, protections for ordinary people. There's no Bill of Rights. So they, uh, the anti-federalists, and you can read the anti-federalist papers in a lot of, uh, in like the Library of Congress and a lot of other places online. Um, and you can see that uh, a lot of them were still pissed off after the you know, new constitution was presented to the states to be ratified, they were like, we don't, we still want to just amend the Articles of Confederation. So we're just against this constitution whole cloth. 
some people were saying, well, this is okay, but we don't like that there's this really strong central power that has the the uh, legal ability to raise an army to put down revolts. Um, it, you know, so they're making all these um, complaints about the existing body, the Constitution, and they also eventually delivered. Um, I think there were more than 20 amendments proposed for a Bill of Rights. Uh, eventually, 15 or or 20 were de uh, delivered to the Constitutional Congress, and I think John Madison was responsible primarily. He was the sort of chief author of which amendments made it from those that were proposed by the, the population um, and those that actually made it into the Bill of Rights. Um, so both the, both the um, Pennsylvania and Virginia Bill of Rights that existed in the Articles of Confederation were more robust and had more protections for the people than the 10 amendments that eventually were allowed into the new constitution. Wow. So this is uh, um, an interesting thing to hear because all of this being done uh, at the same time, people fighting, I think it's so interesting people fighting for their rights um, while at the same time, in many ways, trampling on the rights of other people specifically. I just, that, that idea is just in my head, you know, while still trampling on the rights of, of like the indigenous people or First Nations, all of this stuff is going on. It's such an interesting uh, dynamic to see um, how that played out. But so let's see, what kind of document did this process produce? Thank you for your thoughts again, Andrew. Um, the Constitution creates a government of three branches with limited but generous grants of power to operate directly on individual citizens. The House of Representatives represents the people, and each state has equal representation in the Senate. The president is elected indirectly by an electoral college, mixing national and federal elements. His powers, largely undefined, strike a balance between the good example of George Washington and the bad example of George III. The Constitution leaves the federal judiciary structure to Congress. It's funny, right, that, there, that the, all this, a lot of this started against George III and the first president is another George. Um, let's see, although it includes compromise clauses dealing with slavery, the words slavery and slave appear nowhere in the document because the framers hoped that future generations would find a solution to slavery or that slavery would die out. The amending process codified. I think, in, yeah, I think that's a law. That's real heavy sugar coating. Uh, there, <laughs> there were clear allusions to slavery because they were considered property. Right. Um, and, and then there were also very quickly ways devised by these same people for how to count slaves with regards to um, voting in the Constitution. So the three-fifths law, um, you know, is, go is being made at the same time. So any attempt to really try to paint this process as though it actually was progressive and hoping that eventually slavery would be abolished is nonsense. And, and like I said earlier, the, you know, one of the big profit motives for gaining independence from Britain besides the ability to claim and fight for new land west of the Appalachian Mountains was preserving slavery. In, in Britain, before the American War for Independence, there was a court case that became very famous and 
really put a lot of anxiety in the minds of slave owners. And it was, I think it was called the Somerset trial. And it took place where a slave was, was, um, ruled by a judge to have standing to sue for their own freedom. And that slave successfully sued for their own freedom in the court of law in Britain. And the decision that was rendered by the, the judge and written in more detail at the end of that case really scared the shit out of um, the slaveholding elite in the United States. Sounds and they like realized Amistad. that. Huh? <laughs> so it sounds like the movie Amistad. Oh, I've never seen Amistad. What's that mm. about? Basically, a slave going to court. He had a lawyer, and they they basically well a bunch of one. There was one main character played by Daman Hansu, um, and the, uh, the the attorney that was representing them was uh, played by Matthew McConaughey, and they were in court basically suing for their uh, fighting for their freedom in a court of law. I don't yeah, actually I mean, remember too much of the movie, but that when you whenever you said that, it just reminded me of that. So don't even take my word for it. I have no idea if I'm well, recalling. It may correctly. even be. It may even be based off of the Somerset trial. But yeah, so to say that the founding fathers hoped that slavery would be eventually annulled is really ridiculous because there were active abolitionist movements in Britain and in the colonies during this time. None of the founding fathers were abolitionists. You know, if they really wanted to abolish slavery, they could have become abolitionists. So I, I just no. think it's a whole lot, a whole lot of... Um, uh, really unfounded spin to say that mm. the, the framers didn't directly say slave um, too many yeah. times in the Constitution because they hoped that someone else would take care of it eventually. I mean, that's just like complete conjecture uh, mm. from people who really want to revere these people as right. as extremely intelligent and noble. Right. Well, people also do that by eliminating things like nicknames that uh, George Washington had by the First Nations, which was one town destroyer. <laughs> what of his name? Yeah, destroyer town villages. Yeah, I think the Iroquois yeah. gave George Washington that nickname. Yeah, and so and by mean. the way, the Iroquois um, legal system was a huge base, like a huge ideological foundation for all of these, uh, you know, uh, ideas of democracy and a confederacy, a confederation of of sovereign states is based off of the Iroquois Confederacy. And the United States um, has even admitted that multiple times over its history. And yet um, George Washington was busy murder, mass murdering them so that he could take take up their land and make money as a land speculator. Yeah. Shit. So what Andrew is commenting on is this part that I'm continuing here from. It says, although it includes compromise clauses dealing with slavery, the words slavery and slave appear nowhere in the document. And this is the, the uh, part where they're wanting to revere and paint the, the colonists and the you, you new United States in a, in a more positive light. It says, because the framers hoped that future generations would find a solution to slavery or that slavery would die out. The amending process, continuing, the amending process codified in Article 5 is easier to work than was Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation. And Article 6's supremacy clause makes the Constitution the supreme law of the land and empowers federal courts to interpret it as, their, as part of their duties. Finally, because of the fatigue and the belief as Roger Sherman said, that it would be unnecessary. The original Constitution lacked a Bill of Rights. 
That turned out to be a fateful decision. Article 7 set forth the process for adopting the Constitution. Each state would elect a ratifying convention. If nine of the 13 state conventions, two-thirds, ratified it, it would go into effect as the new government of the United States. Two-thirds was easier to achieve than the unanimous consent required by Article 13. Also, the ratifying conventions were more likely than the state legislators to consider the Constitution on its merits. The legislatures, jealous of their power, would resist any attempt. <coughs> Whoa. The legislatures, <coughs> jealous of their power, would resist any attempt to shift power to the federal to the general government. Finally, because the Constitution would be the government of the American people, only they, not the states, had the power to form such a government. On September 26th through 28th, 1787, the Confederation Congress debated the Constitution. Its opponents failed to persuade con Congress to rewrite it or reject it as exceeding the Convention's power, and its supporters failed to get Congress to endorse it. Instead, Congress silently forwarded the Constitution to the states. <laughs> Congress silently forwarded the Constitution to the states, thus implying that the Constitution was legitimate. Yeah, they slipped it in and they just sent it out there saying, yeah, man, this, this, we, we, you know, everybody agreed. Here you go. The ratification controversy was the supreme display of American political creativity. That's a psyop right there. That's like one of the first, first uh, well-known psyops. They silently forwarded it forwarded the Constitution to the states, implying that it was, right, so if you do that, right, you forward it to them, because people know that they're meeting and debating it, right, and so then if it gets forwarded, then people are assuming, right, because that's the implication when they silently forward it, people assume it's legitimate, oh, they must have agreed mostly on all this stuff, that's why it's being forwarded in the form that it is, right, so the ratification con controversy was a supreme display of American political creativity. Hmm, so that's what they're calling it. It operated on two interacting levels. On the formal level, the Confederation Congress sent the Constitution to the state legislatures, which called elections for ratifying conventions, which deliber del deliberated on ratifying the Constitution. On the informal level, a vigorous argument over the Constitution raged through the nation in newspapers, pamphlets, broadsides, and rallies. The, the informal argument may have been more important. The informal argument may have been the more important level, for it launched American constitutional discourse. The ongoing shared argument among the people about the Constitution's origins. Yeah about the Constitution's origins, significance, meaning, and applications, and helped to create a national political community, focusing the people's attention on the political element of their national identity. Who supported the Constitution? Under the name Federalists. Who opposed it? Known to posterity as Anti-Federalists. Hmm. Some scholars argue that rich people tended to support the Constitution and poor or working class people tended to oppose it, or that city dwellers supported the Constitution and farmers opposed it. 
Both these distinctions fail. Modern scholars suggest that the national issue of ratification interacted in each state with pre-existing divisions of state politics to produce a crazy quilt of shifting alliances and politics and society and their positions on the Constitution. Anti-federalists insisted that the convention exceeded its mandate by writing a new constitution instead of revising the articles. Federalists retorted that Congress and the states had accepted the constitution's legitimacy. Thus, the issue was moot. Also, in the Federalist number 40, Madison invoked the right of revolution in the Declaration of Independence. He pointed out that a government too weak to safeguard the revolution was as threatening to liberty as a government that might be too strong. Second, the two sides disagreed on the nature of the Union and the relationship between the Union and the states. Anti-Federalists feared that the general government would swallow up the states, destroying the people's right of self-government. Federalists, citing the history of the Confederation, insisted that the states would infringe on the general government's powers, as they had with the, confe the, confeder the Confederation. Gosh. I'm saying those words. The Federalists, citing the history of the Confederation, insisted that the states would infringe on the government, on the general government's powers as they had with the Confederation. Also, they argued that only a government, at least as strong as that outlined in the Constitution, could protect the general good and the people's liberties. Otherwise, the Union would break into separate confederacies, which some Federalists charged was what anti-federalists had in mind. Denying that they wanted to break up the Union, anti-federalists insisted that, even if the Confederation was too weak to safeguard American interests, the Constitution still was too dangerous. Third, anti-federalists denounced the Constitution system of representation as inadequate. They mocked the House of Representatives and the Senate as too small by comparison with the large state legislatures. They argued that this unjust scheme of representation would limit the service in Congress to powerful, wealthy men. Federalists resorted that the Constitution's scheme of representation was designed to choose men of enlarged views who could grasp the nation's interests. Moreover, reapportionment would expand the House beyond its original size. Finally, Congress's powers were limited to avoid infringing the people's rights and the state's legitimate powers. Yet, and that he would work to ensure his repeated re-election for life. Federalist retorted that the president would be accountable because he could not hide behind advisors, that his brief term of office would not make him a king, and that the electoral college would choose the best man for the job. Anti-Federalists denounced federal courts as unnecessary and expensive. They worried that federal courts would swallow up state courts, wiping out distinctions between the state laws and leaving the people subject to a tyrannous federal bench. They also decreed or decried the lack of trial by jury in civil cases. In response, 
Federalist justified the federal judiciary as a bulwark of liberty. Executive and vindicate the Constitution and the general government against encroachment by the states. Anti-Federalists found the Constitution's lack of a Bill of Rights their most powerful argument. Even many who backed the Constitution objected to its lack of a Bill of Rights. Jefferson scolded Madison. A Bill of Rights is what the people are entitled to against every government on earth, and what no just government should refuse or rest on inference. Federalists argued that a Bill of Rights was not needed because the Constitution gave the federal government no power over rights. They also noted, as Hamilton insisted in the Federalist Number 84, that the Constitution itself was a Bill of Rights. But, aware that they were vulnerable on this issue, they began to rethink their position. Federalists praised the Constitution's amending process, Article 5. It would be easier to use than Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation, but it also would bolster the Constitution as a fundamental law that should not be lightly altered. Article 5's blend of national and federal elements, as Madison noted in the Federalist Number 39, proved that the Constitution would, would neither destroy the states nor be at their mercy. Other issues came up as well. Anti-Federalists objected to the clause authorizing a permanent capital, which would become a citadel where the people's enemies would shelter themselves against the people's wrath. Federalists highlighted Anti-Federalists denounced the Constitution's ban on a religious test. Wait, <clears throat> New England Anti-Federalists denounced the Constitution's ban on religious tests for voting and holding office, fretting that a Jew, a Turk, or an infidel could become president. <laughs> Federalists extolled this ban as a bulwark of religious liberty. Anti-Federalists in New England also denounced the Constitution's slavery clauses, but Southern Federalists praised them. The Constitution's amending process played a vital role in its victory. I wonder what, what how, how did that even become a thing? Like, why did the North and the South, like, to do, uh, like, how did that even come about? Let's take a look at these comments here. So words carry, let's see, um, oh, silently. Silently means they did it in secretly, meaning they didn't, the, so the people at the convention, when they were debating the Constitution, Colonel, it was supposed to be forwarded to the states um, publicly after it was agreed upon, like when they agreed that things um, were, when, when when the parts of the Constitution were agreed upon by a majority, the two-thirds. But before that was even happened, they sent it to the states without, without telling the people who were there to actually make the decisions so that it implied that it was... Um, that it was legitimized by those people who were there. Those words carry impressions with them and apply emotion and intent that I do not assume is accurate. Andrew says, they should have followed the laws of the Articles of Confederation and allowed a process for the people to consent to the Constitution instead of drawing it up under false pretenses and sending it in secret to be ratified without democratic consent. That's right. 
Um, you don't assume it's accurate for what reason. This book is basing its historical account directly on the writings of the founding fathers before and during the Constitutional Convention and from the Federalists and Anti-Federalists during the fight over ratification. Do the statements directly from the Federalists and Anti-Federalists make you feel some kind of way? Hmm. All right, we'll see. I'll continue. You guys uh, also can open up your mics anytime you want to, um, but I'll just continue here until if or if ever that does. And I'm, and I'm going to actually shut it down after this part and then later on come back and. So, again, right, anti I, I like this part. New England anti-federalists denounced the Constitution's ban on religious tests for voting or holding office, fretting that a Jew, a Turk, or an infidel could become president. Federalists extolled this ban as a bulwark of religious liberty. Anti-federalists in New England also denounced the Constitution's slavery clauses, but Southern Federalists praised them. The Constitution's amending process played a vital role in its victory. At the outset, some anti-federalists insisted that the Constitution had to be amended before they would accept it, drafting lists of previous amendments. Other anti-federalists were willing to adopt the Constitution, but only added constitutional amendments. By contrast, federalists insisted that the Constitution had to be adopted or rejected without amendments. In February 1788, the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention found a sensible compromise. Anti-Federalists would prepare a list of recommended amendments to be sent to the first Congress to meet under the Constitution, and Federalists pledged to back such amendments. This device of recommended amendments became the key to the Constitution's victory. All states, after Massachusetts, except for Maryland, added lists of recommended amendments to their resolutions of ratification. These lists seventeen ninety one becoming the Bill of Rights. All right. And this is coming into a close here, this reading before I break it down. We're almost at an hour and a half here, at an hour and twenty six minutes coming up. <clears throat> This is part four, constitutional change. There's some details in here. Americans have shaped their lives through law, and for more than 200 years, the Constitution has been the core of the nation's law. We make many demands on the Constitution. It sets forth our government structure, allocates powers and duties among our public institutions and officials, and defines our rights and responsibilities. Just as important, the Constitution declares the nation's central principles, the goals for which we came together as power and limits on power, and the kinds of public and private lives that we want to foster under its protection. The Constitution changes over time in three major ways. The most sweeping is formal constitutional change, using Article 5's amending process to add provisions to the Constitution. Formal constitutional change alters the document's form by a method of lawmaking more formal and difficult to use than ordinary lawmaking. To become part of the Constitution, 
A proposed amendment must win a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress and then be ratified by three-fourths of the states, 38 out of 50. More than 12,000 amendments have been proposed since 1789, but Congress has proposed only 33 to the states and only 27 have been adopted. Do you see that? So I guess that it is correct that uh, it's a method of lawmaking more formal and difficult to use than ordinary lawmaking, right? So it must win two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress and then be ratified by three-fourths. And out of the 12,000 amendments that have been proposed, only 27 have been adopted because and, and only 33 were even proposed to the states. Continuing, constitutional amendments fall into one of three categories. The first group, such as the first 10, the Bill of Rights, protects fundamental principles of liberty and self-government. Some, the Civil War Amendments, 13, 14, and 15. ...group, such as that providing the senator, oh, excuse me, the second group, such as that providing that senators be elected by each state's voters, that's uh, 17, or the voting rights amendments, 15, uh, 19, uh, 23, 24, and 26, expands democracy as a core component of the constitutional system. And the third group, such as those dealing with the electoral college, presidential terms of office, and presidential succession and disability, which are in 12, 22, and 25, repairs defects of the original Constitution or responds to problems not envisioned by the Constitution's framers and ratifiers. The second way of changing the Constitution is judicial interpretation. Courts must apply the Constitution's provisions to changing times and circumstances. That is why Edmund Randolph, who prepared the first draft of the Constitution in August of 1787, wrote that he had to draft the Constitution in general terms. Such powerful phrases as commerce among the several states, freedom of speech, cruel and unusual punishment, and equal protection of the laws change meaning over time as new problems arise and people devise new responses to old problems. Each branch of the federal government and state and local officials must interpret the Constitution, but our system gives special weight to the interpretations set forth by federal courts, especially the United States Supreme Court. Some of the pivotal moments of American history have come when the Supreme Court has had to interpret the Constitution to deal with a divisive issue or to resolve a controversy between other branches of government. For example, in 1857, Chief Justice Roger B. Taney seized the opportunity to interpret the Constitution authoritatively to resolve issues concerning slavery. In Dred Scott v. Stanford, Taney ruled that the federal government had no power to limit slavery spread into the territories. The public outcry over this decision helped to bring on the Civil War four years later. In 1954, in Brown versus the Board of Education, the Supreme Court 
that a racial segregation or that racial segregation violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Just as Dred Scott has long been considered the low point of the judicial interpretation of the Constitution, Brown has long been considered a high point. And in 1974, in United States versus Nixon, Chief Justice Warren E. Berger ruled for a unanimous Supreme Court that President Richard Nixon had to obey a federal court's order to turn over tape recordings of private meetings with key aides as evidence in the Watergate investigations. This decision, upholding the principle of the rule of law against a sweeping claim of presidential authority, helped to force Nixon to resign his office. Third, customs and uses and usages grow up around the Constitution, helping to guide its day-to-day workings. Political parties are not mentioned in the Constitution, but they have become essential to the workings of the elected branches of government and to the conduct of elections. So, too, federal courts recognize executive privilege, the principle that a president's confidential discussions with his aide should stay confidential in most circumstances, but not, as in United States versus Nixon, when records of those discussions may be essential to investigate alleged crimes. These three forms of constitutional change work together in a complex series Dean, who's an adjunct professor of law at the New York New York Law School in 2002. And again, what are those three forms of constitutional change? So the three uh, ways of constitutional change, right? Um, one is using Article 5's amending process to add provisions to the Constitution. And its formal constitutional change alters a document's form by a method of lawmaking which is more formal and difficult to use than ordinary lawmaking, right? So to become a part of the Constitution, as was read earlier, um, it is its proposed amendment must win a two-thirds vote in both the Houses of Congress and then be ratified by three-fourths, right? The second way of changing the Constitution is uh, so courts must apply the Constitution's provisions to changing times and circumstances. Right? So that's why uh, Edmund Randolph, who prepared the first draft of the Constitution in 1787, said that the powerful phrases as commerce among the several states, freedom of speech, and cruel and unusual punishment, and equal protection of the law change meaning over time. And then uh, the third um, is that customs and usages grow up around the constitutions, right? So that they help to guide the day-to-day workings. Political parties are not mentioned in the Constitution, but they have become essential to the workings of the elected um, elected branches of government. So again, that's R.B. Bernstein, adjunct professor of law, New York School, 2002. Hello, welcome, Darlene. How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm still here, still standing, and we really have to understand that this is America. And no matter what, we haven't played the game. We're just beginning to, you know, tip the iceberg because the iceberg is really melting and we don't have any control over that. We don't have control over it, a lot of things. 
And as we're finding out that people are working together to create what they would like to see. And life requires that we stand in unity and work together and talk about what's not happening. And because we don't, it's real. I'm telling you, it's just real. It's so difficult to understand even like platform of the anchor podcasting moves to spotify and others saying you have to have a thousand listeners or a thousand subscribers or something like that yes exactly on, on spotify a for, thousand listeners for what purposes on spotify to monetize oh. to get the ambassador app well listen i'm telling and you so the, the whole thing is darlene i've been trying mm -hmm. to tell everybody the whole time man like you can monetize on um on spreaker you tell me much easier but i don't know how to spell that I'm, i don't know how to spell that and i've been trying to look for that program well, I'm gonna send it to <laughs> and you. i would just like to move yeah well i'll huh? send it to you again but I'm it's like, pretty simple yeah did you say well it's either streaker or speaker no speaker i'll send you my um my uh my link to mine so you can see where it is but yeah okay but go ahead yeah because i mean these people but even even here on on wisdom i was doing okay but they didn't like me you know staying on for too long but they didn't never tell me that but then i made a difference one day and you know when you make a difference somebody else is paying attention and so they were talking about what is it chronic absenteeism here in nevada and because you know it really is because, you know, when you go looking for people who look like us, you know, they're just not there. And if you're in the room, you're searching for somebody who looks like you. So we can have that conversation about, do you see what I see? Huh. For some reason, it won't it, let me send you a message. I don't know what's going on with that. That's weird. You know what it is. You know what it is. <laughs> just. If you, if, if you can email me, because you got my email. Yeah, yeah, I can that, send you an email. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the deal. Here is about control. And I'm blessed to be able to get up on and talk to you. I've been restricted for some days now. They tell me I could come back if I would agree not to stream long, you know, podcasts or other people's stuff. And, you know, I don't know how else you teach because people don't have the ability to come across what you've come across in your lifetime. And it's good that it's not all coming from your perspective. That's what I thought. But it's okay because I can always refer people to other places where I... We all have to come up. We really do. There's no more time. And, and the world is fragile. Well... And and, and you know, and I don't know about that blue reflection that they're talking about in Maui for whatever the Navy's doing over there, but the Navy is doing some things over there. And uh, they're saying that over a thousand people are still missing. And they're saying that the ashes burned so hot that they didn't leave any trees behind of the people. And there were all those cars that were just stuck there, right there by the ocean. And the people couldn't get out. And I'm just saying, seriously, I think we have to come together and talk about things as they happen.
you know, that's the empowerment. Mm -hmm. And the Constitution really does allow you, it's intended, because that's the only thing you learned from school. In elementary school, just the Pledge of Allegiance. And then if you were talented, some teachers would encourage you to build out on those talents. But for the most part, if children are failing, it's social and emotional, and it becomes a promotion without any learning going on. And enough is enough. I've had enough because I understand when they told me my youngest child was severely mentally retarded in communication and yet just wouldn't benefit from public education. And I was just trying to really understand what that would mean. But I went every day and he did graduate with a one-on-one aid, a laptop, and a bump proficient, but he's still here. And he's going to be 27 in April and he doesn't even try to leave the house. But if he does, he tells me exactly what he wants to do and then we discuss it how he's going to do it you know what i'm saying because it's a public safety issue because he would panic but when we listen to these young people who are in foster care and they don't have any ideal being black and being in foster care you don't have a family to go back to and i'm saying seriously to be connected to no one in the world and that's what they've done to our people because we have far too many kids in foster care. And if you pay attention to any of the news outlets here in Nevada, they are overwhelmed with children in foster care. That means they're not teaching parents how to parent. And then I, I signed up for, see, in Nevada Partners is a not-for-profit that gets this money from Because I don't have to be where they are to support people. Yeah, right. I've supported a lot of families and parents. And and there's one young man, uh, myself and a, another lady named Yvonne Kemper Wilson. We went to court. We went to the county office of education because this kid was getting ready to get dispelled for something really stupid. But we got the over, we got the expulsion overturned. He's a doctor now, and his father came up to me during one of the meetings, the public, you know, school board meetings, and thanked me. And you know, it's just, what can you say when you know that you've made a difference? I make a difference every day, and so now I'm under this review process here on Wisdom. They determine if I'm worthy enough to come back and stream on my own. No, I wouldn't be uh, concerned about that. You just got to keep making waves on your own. Like, I, this is the, the thing. Too many people complain about what is going on with the platforms and glitches and this and this and that. And all you have to do is just stick it's to your is, is yeah, yeah, just stick to your purpose and keep doing what you're doing. Because yeah. I see it. I see things here and there. But it's like, you know, you just have to. But I'm making a difference. Yeah. And I know that. And so because, you know, my success with my three sons were not like my three sons on the television. And we need to really pull away from the television as we determine how we're going to live our lives by. He's an intelligent being. All right. And, well, I, uh, that's not and 
Well, I mean, you want, I see people don't like to talk about it because simply all the ugliness that came out during the trial. Well, I, it, here's the thing. I don't have anything to add to that because I don't pay attention to that stuff. Like, I'm, and I, I didn't. And I, I honestly, I didn't pay attention to the trial. What I did pay attention to, however, is the last time they went to court, those three white attorneys were asking to include his entire music cat catalog and and for his life. And I'm saying, how could that be a part of racketeering? But then understand Rudy Giuliani and racketeering and Rico. And understand what they're saying he was guilty of is giving money away to the black community. Yeah. And I'm just saying, okay. Yeah. To the other, because everybody was included in that, including the parents, and I don't know where they were. Yeah. But I'm just saying that, you know, as an individual, I raised my sons. I didn't put them in foster care, but I'm looking at the children who are broken out there. They don't have anybody to connect to, and they don't have any culture to come to. It's not the church. It's not the community organizations. I mean, I don't know how they ever learn. It's trauma, you know, and trials and tribulations, because until you stop making that mistake, you're going to continue to make it. And you'll see it coming every time. You say, damn, I'm here again. And it's not funny. But, you know, you have to think about what it is you're doing. And... Well, how you can change that, and I, and I know that, but I, I, I like you, and I and I think you're very intelligent, and I think that you know well, you're at an age I'm like not, my sons. I'd like to say that I'm not intelligent, I'm not smart, I'm just curious. That's what I am. I'm well, that, I'm not an intelligentsia. I'm not broke. an academic. I'm just a curious. No, person. I'm just saying. Me too. I want to know. And my stepfather always told me that before I got out there and challenged anything to make sure that I had done some research. So I do research. I'm not the smartest person. I don't know everything. But guess what? My sons are not in prison. And I have three of them. But for the number of black children that are in prison or African-American children that are in prison, native to America, the ones who don't understand. We live in a nation that requires engagement of the process. And if you choose not to, others will engage for you and make decisions for you. And so when we pay taxes, believe me, we're paying for those others that have a vision of what they're willing to allow you to benefit from and what they're not. Well, and that's why it's critical. I think it's that, just critical. Yeah, I think that it's true that um, if you don't uh, control your your mind someone else will be willing to do it for you if you don't control your cash flow someone else is going to spend it for you Thank they you. see you coming yeah. <laughs> and and it's and it's and it's difficult but then you know life is a blessing and we know how to make it work you do because you're a make it work person me too i'm 65 my children are adults and and the responsibility that I have now as a homeowner is different from when I was just my mama's daughter. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so I try to figure it out. That's why I said monetizing. Well, you know, when they just restrict every penny. Okay. But they're, then they're monetizing because they certainly, I, there's not another podcast on Spotify that talks about the parent empowerment hour, you know, or half an hour or anything. Empowering people is not there. But there are a lot of self-help um, you know, podcasts, but faith, and it is the faith of the mustard seed that carries you every day. 
Well, hopefully it's part, you know, I don't understand restrictions and things like that. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the, uh, the First Amendment, the freedom of speech. And But the thing is, what, what, what someone once told me, uh, Christopher Birkenbein, is that even though there is freedom of speech, right, different platforms and the different platforms are different people's houses, right? So, for example, like uh, Spotify is their house and they don't have to yeah. let you say or do anything on their platform if they don't want to. So. No, everybody has a different platform because, like I said, you can do this on your own. Out here on the net, you can create your own website. You can invite people to come and they will come. And if you build it, they will come. And you know that. And I do know that. And so I just have to decide where it is ultimately I'm going to land. But I know how to build capacity. I have a Zoom account. I'm paying my my one-time fee and i can have a workshop and i can do whatever i want to do whenever i want to do it mm. i just have to average and people have to have a desire to learn yeah. because it's, it's it's a choice i can say that one thing we all have to breathe the same air we all have to you know drink this the water we all have to have some type of substance and the problem is that we don't have control over none of that Right. And so we do have to think about what we do. Hold on one second. All right, Darlene. Um, okay. you else? Getting ready to no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping in about 12 minutes, but I have Andrew over here. I was just asking if you had any final thoughts really quickly. No, I'm just trying to tell you, you're doing the right thing. And, you know, the Constitution is in audio form on the net. You can listen to it. And the 13th, 14th, and the 15th Amendment, I believe the 22nd Amendment, there are a lot of amendments that open the door, but nothing's going to open the door if we refuse to come in. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Okay. You have a blessed day. Right. And thank you for being on your show. And I'll be looking forward to talking to you because I know you always let me come up. Right, <laughs> you have a great day. Right, you and too. you're going to email me. Oh, yes, I will. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Right, What's up, Andrew? Hey, um, well, I just gotta, I gotta say, I gotta run. Um, yeah. uh, you said you might come back later today, do more chapters of this book. Well, yeah, I'm going to go through, the... well, it's pretty much done with the intro and all the stuff like that. There's just a chronology of the constitution, you know, very important dates. And then the constitution directly, um, it enters into, and then, um, there's, uh, the amendments and the articles of confederation. So we have the constitution. Then we have the amendments to the Confederation. So probably all be done in different sections. Gotcha. Yeah, just one thing. I know Carnal's already gone, um, but whatever for anyone else who comes back and listens later. Um, the, the point where the framers of the Constitution had to break Article 13 of the Articles of Confederation, which required that there be unanimous consent amongst the states to um, to make very major changes to the Articles of, Con of Confederation general government. I think that's very important. And the other thing I would say just about the conversation you were having with uh, what's her name? Is her name Darlene? Darlene, yeah. Um, where you said that you have freedom of speech but each of these platforms is like you know, speaking on each of these platforms is like if you were speaking in someone's house and they can kick you out. I think that's a little bit of a bad take. 
And my reasoning for saying that is, well, I have numerous reasons for saying that. Uh, the, I think one of the major ones I'll bring up, though, is uh, if you go through a lot of the articles that Matt Taibbi and other uh, people who had access to the Twitter files have written, um, they've said that from the emails that they've looked through, it seems like the, the government, so mainly the Department of Homeland Security, is actually dictating to these private companies what their terms and conditions should be. And the other thing is that they can also create you know, a sort of monopoly or not price pooling, but policy pooling uh, practices where they make it so there's really no real alternatives from one platform. Um, when it comes to how does the First Amendment interplay with private companies, I think that there's it's a big deal that these private companies are having some terms dictated by the federal government um, about what they can and cannot allow on their platforms. And then also they can also just engage in extremely anti-competitive practices and say anyone saying anything critical of our platform, you're gone. Anyone saying anything critical of uh, my, you know, the owners of the platform's business partners, you're going to be gone or you're going to be demoted in the algorithm. So I just uh, I think. I'll just close like saying good, good stuff on on critically analyzing the Constitution and actually reading a few different sources. Um, and then also, yeah, just wanted to challenge you on um, giving too much reverence to private <laughs> tech platforms for okay, their control no, over your speech. I, I appreciate I appreciate that. It's good. I mean, I'm not I'm not right about everything, and I also may have um, tyrannical leanings myself. I, I have no idea. I'm still trying to figure out what the hell's going on with me. So who knows, maybe right um, the more I learn about myself and my own opinions, maybe they will change for the better. So I always appreciate all kinds of input. Good stuff. Well, I'll talk to you later then. All right. Talk to you later, Andrew. Thanks for, as always for your comments. I really do appreciate your insights. Yeah, you too. Catch you later. All right. Um, I'm going to just look through some of the comments here from Andrew and Carnal. Carnal, uh, well, Carnal left. Um, so he's not here anymore. I guess I'll leave that be for now um, and until a later discussion. Plus, I'm at uh, an hour and 53 minutes, and uh, I do not want to go any more than two hours. I usually don't want to go more than um, uh, one hour, but that, these have turned into discussions um, beyond my reading, which is great because I'm across a couple of platforms. So um, I'd like to thank uh, Andrew, as usual, for his commentary, for uh, Carnal for coming in and sitting in the seat and making his comments in the text over there, and for uh, Chuck for coming in and saying what's up a little bit earlier, and also for Darlene Anderson coming up, as usual, um, with her input, and always grateful for the work that she's doing and making changes on a local level over there. So thanks. Uh, hello, North Squatch was here. Brad, I appreciate you listening. I wonder if that's Brady. Um, I did invite Brady up, but he didn't come back into the room. I don't know if somebody in there had a block going on. Colin's an interesting uh, flow. And then also on Wisdom, um, whether you stopped and sat a spell or are passing through, thank you, uh, Dow with the Dashes, Truly Julie, Martha Barsha, Sarita, what's up, Sarah? 
Um, I did see you came over on uh, Colin to listen as well. Zoe, Soldier of God, Duana Carl, Nicole Rolla, Terry, uh, Prophetess Louie, Brother Chuck, again, thanks for coming up. Trisha Barreto, uh, Penny Frampton, Dr. Robert James Goodman. Hello, sir. Um, by the way, he's got uh, his um, his book is out on um, on uh, Amazon now. You should check out uh, Dr. Robert James Goodman. Um, I forgot what was the... I'm forgetting the name of the book right now. Oh, my gosh. Um, it has a good name. Anyway, guys, forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm not as... Uh, astute with my memory sometimes as I'd like to be. So, uh, Sonrisa Del Ria, Doobie, hello, sir. Susan Ozo, Abigail Barton, Lois Hampson. Oh, and that's also because I haven't read the book yet. So, um, Lois Hampson, hello. Um, I would probably remember better if I did read it. Latrice Norris, author Nicole S. Brown, hello. Sharon Graciela Moore, hey, how you doing? Dak Frederick, Sonny, Brittany Decay, uh, Mike Wright, her Majesty Abby, Coolio and D. Jones, Rick Gurley, Megan Larson, Eye Opener Society, Midnight Rain, Becca, Cecilia Grace, kudos, T. Solo, Darlene, thanks again for coming up and saying hello, uh, Talita Potter, and for adding your comments and um, all that you're doing in your local community in Vegas over there, and Marcianne and Lee News Debate. All right, everybody, you've been listening to a discussion and reading of some. Uh, introduction to the Constitution of the United States of America, presented by your hitman here, H-I-T-M-A-N, Hakeem, in the morning, afternoon, and night. Because I never know when I'm going to be here in the morning, afternoon, or night. Today was an early day for me. It's only 1 o'clock. That's usually when I wake up. Uh, I'm Hakeem Ali Bokas Alexander here on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio, Inc., and Call-In, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club communications in association oh that's communications with two k's by the way um, and uh, in association with exercisingyourmind.com and unequilibrium stay well